you're in Mark chapter 9, say amen together. Amen. amen. Let's study the Word of God together. Verses 30 and 31. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now this gives us a little context of what's going on. In fact, I'm going to do that for the next few verses. By way of introduction, I'm going to give you context. Uh, and then we're going to get into the outline of the message here in just a little bit. But you need to understand this to grasp what Jesus is trying to get at. It all works together. What he just said in red letters there, that's called a passion prediction. This is the second time so far in Mark's Gospels that Jesus has predicted to his disciples his death and his resurrection. The first time was back in chapter 8 in verse 31. The reason why Jesus is being so proactive about telling the disciples about his death and resurrection is because they were struggling to grasp the real reason why he came to earth. In their human brains, they were still thinking that Jesus came to earth to be an earthly king. To establish an earthly kingdom, to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. That's what they had in their mind. They, they were convinced that Jesus' priorities involved power and prestige and position. But Jesus was trying to be clear with them. No, guys, you got it wrong. My priorities involve just the opposite. They involve sacrifice, suffering. And service. See, the reason Jesus wanted his disciples to accept and share in his priorities was because in order for them to carry on the kingdom of God and be used to expand the kingdom of God after Jesus died, rose again, and went back up in heaven, they would have to know these priorities clearly. If they were going to do the work of the gospel, they couldn't be about power, position, and prestige. If they were going to do the work of the kingdom, they had to be about sacrifice, suffering, and service. Now, considering this is the second time that Jesus taught his disciples about his priorities, you'd think a light bulb would turn on and they would get it. I mean, we'll give them a pass for not getting it the first time because a lot of us don't get things the first time. But Jesus said it the second time in the same exact way he said it the first time. Guys, I came to die. I'm going to be buried. Then I'm going to be risen. I'm going to go back up into heaven. I didn't come to serve on this earth as a king. I came to die for lost souls. You would think they would get it, but they didn't. Verse 32 says, but they understood not that saying. They were afraid to ask him. So they didn't grasp or comprehend what Jesus was trying to get across when he said, these are my priorities. Even worse, they were too afraid to talk to him about it. Now, now they're probably afraid to ask him questions because they remembered last time Peter asked him a question. After his suffering in chapter 8, Peter got called Satan. They didn't want to be called Satan. They remembered that, that, that after Peter asked them the question, they went on to tell the, Jesus went on to tell the rest of the disciples how they would need to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And, and frankly, they weren't interested in hearing any more of that talk. So they weren't going to ask questions because they knew what Jesus was going to say. But just because they stopped talking to Jesus doesn't mean they stopped talking to each other. They got into this really heated argument, this dispute. They're going to reason among themselves about something on their way back to Capernaum. Look at verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Look up here. Jesus said, hey guys, I wanted to talk to you just a verse ago, but you weren't interested. I wanted to talk about the cross, but you didn't have nothing to say. 
I want to talk about death and suffering, but you weren't interested. So tell me exactly, what are you going on about? Because you didn't want to talk a minute ago. Look at verse 34. But they held their peace. (laughs) I was a youth pastor for over 10 years. Times whenever I drive, you know, those 15 passenger vans that every church hauls teenagers around in. And we'd be going down the road and I hear them talking about something they shouldn't talk about, especially in a church van with the youth pastor present in mixed company. And so I'd look and say, what are y'all talking about? And they held their peace. (laughs) They didn't want to say a word. That's the disciples. What were they talking about? Jesus knew. Look, verse 34. They disputed, argued among themselves, who should be the greatest? Their minds are so wrapped up in priorities of position, power, and prestige that even when Jesus tried to pull them out of that mindset, they couldn't, they just argued, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus was trying to embrace, get them to embrace a cross. All they wanted to talk about was a crown. He wants to develop within them the heart uh, to serve people. All they could talk about was how they were going to reign over people. Jesus said, guys, my priority is this, humble service to others. Yet the disciples' priority was about serving themselves. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, these disciples aren't the only disciples to get their priorities mixed up. Every one of us have and continue to struggle with embracing the priorities of Jesus, especially when it comes to humbly serving other people. Instead, in our culture today, we can become so easily wrapped up in becoming about ourselves and our own greatness. It shows up at home instead of having the the priority of service to our spouse, we prioritize being served by our spouse. Teenagers, instead of being a helpful hand to your parents, you can be all about what they put into your hand. Shows up at work. You go to work and your number one priority has nothing to do with service. It has everything to do with success. If you do serve, it's only because you want to get seen so you can be successful. You're constantly motivated by promotion and position and recognition, not service or humility. It's all about the next step on the ladder. Friendships. Boy, you can easily become a relational vampire without even knowing it. You can suck the life out of a friend by dumping all your burdens on them, but never give them a chance to talk back to you. Every conversation is turned into a one-sided venting session instead of a friendship where you serve one another. Oh, it shows up at church too. Been in church my whole life. In fact, nine months before I was born, I was in church. Instead of being a participant, you're more of a spectator. Instead of being a problem solver, you're a problem spotter. Instead of looking to be a blessing to others, you're more about others being a blessing to you. Instead of recognizing others for their service, you're more about being recognized for yours. See, disciples today, you and I, we often do the same thing these disciples did. We fail to embrace the priorities of Jesus when it comes to humbly serving others. So what did Jesus do? I'll tell you what he did. He cleared off a spot. He sat down. You know when Jesus sits down, he's about to start teaching. So, so you need to sit down too. And he taught them a very simple lesson with a very simple thesis. And it's this. Those who share Jesus' priorities will pursue humble service. That's the essence of the text today. That's the lesson for those disciples and us as his followers today. From this text, here's what we're going to do. We're going to learn three characteristics of humble disciples who embrace the priorities of Jesus. Look at verse 35. And he sat down 
and called the twelve. And saith unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So he took a child, set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So Jesus told his disciples, Something totally counterintuitive to them. You know what he said? He said, disciples, you're concerned about status and position, but you need to know this. The highest status in the kingdom of God is reserved for those who are last and those who serve the least. The least of these. And to illustrate that, he, he invites a child into his arms. Now, a child in this day was considered the least of all. Did you know that? In fact, the same word translated as servant in verse 35 was often the same word in this day to describe children. In the first century, they were synonymous terms. You know why? Because servant and child meant the same thing. Today, we view children as innocent and gentle and pure. And for the most part, we should. But they viewed children as insignificant and having no social status whatsoever. So welcoming a little child meant breaking social norms for Jesus. It meant humbling oneself to accept another person who is of lower status. It meant risking your own reputation or prestige to serve a person that was beneath you. Hear me, church, true servant leadership, true discipleship flips social hierarchy on its head and instead lifts up and serves those who are of a lower status in the world. Did you know that? And in doing so, here's what Jesus said. You're serving me. And you're serving my Father. To receive and accept and serve somebody who is seemingly insignificant is actually to receive, accept, and serve God. That means the opposite is true as well. It's a sober warning. To reject or refuse to serve somebody who you think is beneath you is to reject and refuse the priorities in the heart of your Savior. See, the book of James is, is pretty harsh when it comes to showing partiality, especially within the church. Look at his words in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God. I think this, this is the wrong verse. I put a, the wrong verse on there. Turn there with me, would you? I know you thought I was perfect. James chapter 1. Turn there. That's not your fault, Colin. That's my fault. James chapter 1. I'm sorry, James chapter 2. That's probably why I put it on there wrong, because I'm saying it wrong. James chapter 2, verse 1. I'll let the pages stop turning and we'll get there. I want you to see this. He says, my brethren, these are believers, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. That's partiality. Verse 2, for there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel. There come in also a poor man in vile raiment. You have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves? And are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him, but ye have despised the poor. What's James saying? To treat someone differently based on their economic or social status? Based on their physical appearance? 
based on what they can do for you or what they can't do for you in return. Here's what James says. It is nothing short of evil. It's evil. It's become common in our culture, even in the church world, to look down upon certain individuals. And James says that's wrong. That's sin. It's not just how we view people and treat people. It's also how we serve people. Can I ask you a question? When is the last time you did something for somebody that could not help themselves? When is the last time you served somebody even though you would receive nothing in return, including recognition or even thankfulness for what you did? When is the last time that you gave of your time or your money or your talent or your energy or your weekend to a person or an entity or a cause that others would deem insignificant and a waste of time? Like serving on a bus route right here through Fellowship Baptist Church. Do you know we pick up kids every Sunday morning and Wednesday night to come to church that would never come to church otherwise? And people would look at, at, at children in our community that raised in, in, in unfortunate situations sometimes or, or just simply have parents that love them but don't love church and so don't come and they want to come. You know, people would look at that and say, that's insignificant. Shouldn't she be, shouldn't she be going to the other parts of town? Sh- shouldn't she be careful who you let in the church? Listen, this ain't a country club. We're, we're not, this, this building's put together, but those in this building are not put together, including the preacher. Like we try to have the carpets vacuumed and everything dusted and, and the bathroom's clean when you come. I even try to wear a suit on Sunday, but I'm here to tell you I'm messed up. I am a broken sinner and so are you. And this church is about welcoming who the world would say, be careful. Too risky, waste of money. How about donating clothes or, or food or serving a Thanksgiving meal this November at the Stepping Stone Shelter? You ever thought about that? How about getting involved in an organization like Bright Futures or Southwest Miracles or Mosaic? These organizations in our community that serve low-income children in our school district, sick and crippled people in our community that need medical equipment, mentally disabled folks who are created in God's image just like you are. How about considering getting involved in the foster care system? I know that, that, that fewer people are, are able to do that than, than, than would, would want to do that. And I know there are a lot of people say, man, if I had the space, if I had the resources, if I had the energy, if, if our jobs and our schedules would allow it, I would love, I get that. It's not for everybody, but it is for some people. I, I believe that, that those who, who, who will entertain that possibility, I believe God will bless that. Daniel and Nino Thrall are, 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 are in the foster care system, and I, I think they, they are, are in the midst of their third placement right now. And, and, and I love to see, I love to see how they bring those kids to church with them. I love to see how our nursery workers and children's workers love on them. You understand that if the world had their way, they would just throw them into a home somewhere, an orphanage somewhere, just discount them. So our foster care system is totally overran right now. And I understand, again, I'm not guilting anybody. It's not for everybody. But you need to open your heart to a possibility like that. And say, God, 
would you be calling me to serve the insignificant in this way? Did you know it means the world to somebody when they see somebody who professes to be a Christian that isn't just interested in the popular crowd? It makes a statement when they see somebody who goes to church is faithful to the Lord, but they're interested in everybody. I know that because I've had so many people come to me and compliment the shortest guy in our church. Bless his heart, Rick Potts. Rick, how long have you donated your time to Kids Inc? 30 years. He officiated me when I was in bitty basketball, Kids Inc football. He had never seen an athlete like me until. He was mesmerized. He's like, how, how, how did you not make it big? You're a preacher? What? He's shocked every time I come in with a mic on my tie. Not a football in my arm, but it was, it's amazing. It's amazing. Y'all know that's a, a complete lie. It, it, it's amazing to me to, to, to be in the bleachers or even coaching my son and watch who Potsy gravitates to. He doesn't always gravitate to the leading scorer. Doesn't always gravitate to the coach's son who has his dad to coach him every day. I see Potsy has a heart for, for the kid that can't quite dribble and chew gum at the same time. He, he, has, he has a heart for the kid that, bless his heart, keeps running up and down the court with both shoes untied. He has a heart for a kid that he's trying to administer a throw in and he gives it to the kid and he runs, runs out on the court like it's a football. He just doesn't know and Potsy grabs him, sometimes picks him up, puts him right back on the baseline and teaches him. I love that stuff. And here's why it means the world to me, because people see that. People see that he cares about kids that other people overlook, including the coaches sometimes. I'm thankful for that. We need more of that. We need more of the hands and feet of Jesus like that in our community, serving on our boards, in our public schools. We need more people that value the insignificant. So here's Jesus. He has his child wrapped up tenderly in his arms. Someone that the disciples would be embarrassed to be seen with. And he teaches them the value of serving insignificant people. Now here's what's crazy. Not long after that lesson, one of the sons of thunder, John, speaks up. And he thunders out a very, very stupid statement. You ever said something you wish you could put right back in your mouth? Okay, I got to get back to Mark. Look at, look at, look at... Uh, Verse number 38, and John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. He followeth not us. And we forbade him. We told him to stop because he followeth not us. Now think about this. In light of what Jesus just taught them with this sweet little child in his arms, doesn't John's concern seem really petty? Huh? They should because they are. John was almost bragging to Jesus about having told another believer, another disciple, to stop doing ministry in the name of Jesus because he wasn't following them. He wasn't one of them. He wasn't in their group. Wasn't part of their church. Didn't dress like them. Tell him to stop. I told him to stop, Jesus. We're the only ones that can do ministry around here in Galilee. Capernaum doesn't need any other demon caster outers. 
The irony is thick here because just a few verses ago, I preached it two weeks ago, the disciples were powerless in casting a demon out of a boy. Yet this no-name maverick disciples out there experiencing all kinds of ministerial success, doing what the disciples earlier couldn't do, and John's mad about it. I think he's jealous about it. I think he's getting territorial. I think he's getting competitive. So what does Jesus say? He said, John, I totally agree with you, man. Let me go handle this. This guy's out of line. There ain't no one going to cast out demons other than the 12 dudes I got right here. This is my church. Look what Jesus said in verse 39. But Jesus said, forbid him not. Don't tell him to stop. Why? For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. It's common sense. This is even more common sense. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, insignificant, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, don't tell him to stop, dude. If he's out there doing ministry in my name, he's not an enemy. If he's not out to get me, he's for me. If he's not opposing my father, we don't oppose him. In fact, Jesus says, I appreciate what he's doing. I appreciate any type of service that somebody does in my name and for the glory of my father, even if that's as small as giving somebody a glass of water to drink in my name. In other words, Jesus is saying, when it comes to ministry and service to others, the criteria for a heavenly reward has less to do with style and less to do with flavor and less to do with tradition and less to do with preference. And it has more to do with the name of Jesus Christ being lifted up and the Father in heaven being glorified. If lives are changed for eternity, even through ministries or services or people different than us, we should appreciate it and rejoice in it. Second characteristic of a humble disciple, they appreciate others who serve Jesus. You know the disciples' nature to get competitive and territorial and envious? Wasn't anything new in Scripture. See, back in Numbers 11, there were two dudes. One was called Eldad and one was called Medad. They were prophesying in the camp, the nation of Israel. And Joshua, the future leader of the children of Israel, this real spiritual guy, sees them prophesying and he thinks to himself, these are not part of the original 70 elders, the chosen 70 elders. They shouldn't be prophesying. So you know what he does? He goes to Moses, the big guy in charge, and he says, go stand up to these guys and tell them to stop. And hear Moses' reply in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Moses said unto him, envious thou not for my sake? What God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord had put his spirit upon them. Moses is saying, we need more people to prophesy. We need more people to proclaim. We need more people with the heart of a prophet. I'm not as concerned about the messenger, Joshua, as I am about the message going out. Fast forward hundred years, hundreds of years to Philippians chapter one. Greatest missionary to ever walk the soil of this earth by the name of the Apostle Paul was chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 under house arrest for preaching the gospel. When he got locked up, there were other evangelists and missionaries and preachers holding their crusades and services and seeing all kinds of ministerial success. The Apostle Paul couldn't leave the house. You would think he would get angry and envious and territorial and competitive about these preachers getting on his turf, on his mission field, doing his work. Yet look at how Paul responds to these guys out there preaching, preaching, 
Christ. Philippians 1.18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Do you hear me? Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. Paul said, they might do it different than I do it. They might even have motives that don't have my best interest in heart. But at the end of the day, if they preach Christ, I rejoice. I appreciate that. I got to come to this, this conclusion. If Jesus had this attitude toward people, if the great Moses, the deliverer of Israel, had this attitude toward people, and if the greatest missionary to walk the face of the earth had this attitude toward people, why don't you? And why don't I? And why doesn't our church sometimes? We're not in a competition with other churches in our town. I'm proud of our church. I'm thankful for our church. I'm incredibly biased, but it's my favorite church. But we aren't intentionally trying to outdo other churches. We would do well today to appreciate every ministry and every church that is doing kingdom work in the name of Jesus Christ and even rejoice like the Apostle Paul did when their efforts lead to the salvation of lost souls. Well, they didn't do it like I did it. Moses didn't say that. The Apostle Paul didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. Because humble disciples don't say stuff like that. Appreciating our ministries and churches, listen, that, that, are, that are different than us, it doesn't mean we have to compromise our doctrine or our position. It, it just means we're humble enough, number one, to admit we don't have the corner of the market when it comes to reaching people in our community. And number two, God is big enough and creative enough and willing to use whoever and whatever he wants as a means of salvation, even if they're not like us. Let me be clear. I need to be clear on this. There are indeed, I don't say this vindictively, I say this because it's the truth. There are some enemies of the gospel. Even in our community. Not every church that calls themselves a church is a church. If they preach a false gospel, that's not a church. If they preach that the way to heaven is by Jesus plus this and this and this, that's not a church. There are various ministries and dominations and organizations, watch, that feign service in Jesus' name. Hey, if I'm going to say that we appreciate those that do service in Jesus' name, I need to flip the side of the coin here and tell you that there are some that feign that they do it in Jesus' name. We do not have to appreciate false religion just because they're doing what they're doing in the name of Jesus. Let me be clear. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus reveals that there will be people that stand before him that did many mighty works in his name. But it will be the great white throne judgment because they will hear Jesus say this to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So if you think every church is a good church, every preacher is a true preacher, you got, the, you got a wrong opinion. As, church and as, as a church, as Christians, we're called upon to exercise discernment in who we collaborate with and, and acknowledge as true churches. But this text warns us against being too exclusive in those matters. It seems like we go to one extreme or the other. Everybody's a church. If you just love Jesus, then you're good. One extreme. Another extreme. 
If you don't look, dress, and smell like us, then you don't love Jesus. Why do we got to go to either extreme? This text warns us against being too exclusive. I got to share with you a poem. I'm not a poem guy. This one almost brought a tear to my eye by Charles Swindoll. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. God rid us of that kind of spirit. We, we, we should have the kind of spirit as a church where we can be brothers without being twins. And where we don't have to be identical with each other to cooperate with one another, even other people in our community that are doing the work of the Great Commission. Somebody say amen. That's the truth. But did you know that, that it's not just churches toward churches? This actually happens within a church. Christians towards Christians that are picking at each other. Jealous and envious and competitive and territorial. You're not going to take my spot. Not going to sing more than I sing. Pastor thanked them for that, but he didn't thank me. Charles Swindoll, I'm going to bring up old Charles again. He said, it is a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, the gifted and the highly competent. You know, doctors, singers, 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 <laughs> artists, lawyers, businessmen and women, authors, Entertainers, educators, did I skip one? <laughs> Preachers, educators, politicians, all public figures. Strange, isn't it, that such capable folk find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade or two more than they. If somebody's better than you and they're part of the same church, here's what our posture should be. Praise the Lord. If someone's more effective than you in ministry, here's what you should do. If someone at work gets a promotion and you don't, it'll save you from a lot of inner turmoil. Humble disciples aren't jealous. They're not territorial. They're not overly possessive of what they do at church. They understand this isn't about me. This is about my God. And as a team, we occupy this church and this ministry to draw men to the cross. And we've got to do that together. Yeah, I can give you one more. I'm going to hustle on this and be done. Jesus taught number one, when disciples share his priorities, they value insignificant people in serving Jesus. They, number two, appreciate others who serve Jesus. Then he uses hyperbole to teach his disciples a very serious point, And it's this. Humble disciples remove anything from their lives that prevent others from serving Jesus. This is, this is serious. I'm, I'm going to close with this point. Verse 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Jesus is saying, don't offend a little one. What's a little one? Well, not a child. He's, he, he's speaking metaphorically to someone who's vulnerable. Gullible, susceptible to sin, maybe a young and immature believer. The word offend means to cause one to stumble or fall into sin. He's saying, disciples, listen to me. Don't do anything 
that would cause a vulnerable believer to trip and fall into sin. If you do, and this is hyperbole, Jesus isn't wishing that anybody would drown. He's, he's evoking a sense of soberness and serious mindedness towards what he's saying. He's saying, if you do, it's actually better that you tie this really heavy piece of farming equipment about your neck called a millstone, jump into the sea, sink to the bottom and never come back up. If you're going to live your life in such a way that causes other people around you to stumble, it's better that you drown. Hmm. How do we... How, how do we do that? John MacArthur calls it sinful solicitation. He gives four ways. Look at these. Put all four up there. It's the next four clicks. Direct temptation. Indirect temptation. Setting a bad example. Or failing to broke others to righteousness. Direct temptation. What Potiphar's wife did to Joseph. Lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. Trying to get him to sleep with her. Commit fornication. Good thing he said no. He's a man of character and integrity. It should never be said of a humble disciple that, that, that you are tempting someone to do wrong. Indirect temptation. An example of this is in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. That, that applies to mothers as well. Don't, don't, don't make your kids angry. Well, how do we do that? Being inattentive. Not showing affection. Being impatient and angry. Overbearing at times when it's unnecessary. He said, it's possible, Paul says, if you do that for long enough, you're going to cause your kids to stumble. You're going to wound their spirit. But, 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 but then spouses, I think the same is, is possible for us. Be, neglecting your spouse in your marriage, putting work over them all the time, not listening to your spouse, getting defensive towards your spouse, indirectly wounds the spirit of your spouse. And a spouse cannot stay under that burden for long without stumbling. Setting a bad example. Romans 14 says, don't cause your brother to stumble, a weak brother to stumble. What, what does that mean? There should be nothing, listen to me please, nothing that you say, do, participate in, that if another, a person who just got saved looked at your life on a Friday night or a Saturday night and saw you participating in that or doing that or with those people, that it would cause them to think that sin's okay. Are you getting the seriousness of this? Don't do that. It's dangerous. It's offensive. Be careful. And then failing to provoke others to rights. And I like this one. Because you might not be the cause of somebody falling, but you might not intervene to keep them from falling. And that's letting them fall. When you, don't, when you see someone not come to church for week after week after week, but you never reach out. You, you, you see somebody making very foolish decisions, but you never say anything. Jesus said, that's offensive. That's offensive. Only reason why you're not saying anything is because you're probably too worried about yourself and what they're going to think of you when you say it. That's called pride. That's the opposite of humility. Jesus is saying, when you do this, sinful solicitation, this is not a characteristic of a humble disciple. How do you keep from doing this? Verse 43. And if I hand offend thee, cut it off. Wow. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. You can read the same thing in 44, 45, 46, 47, and 48. He is not, he, he is not saying literally cut off your hands. He's using, uh, speaking figuratively, to, to, to say this, get radical about getting rid of anything in your life that might cause another brother or sister to stumble into sin themselves. 
That means you could post what you want to post on social media. But you're not going to post it because somebody might see it that you're trying to reach for Christ. And instead of endearing yourself to them, it might actually repel them. You're, going to, you're just going to get radical and say, no, I'm not even going to do it. Not even going to do it. Why? You're a humble disciple. You're thinking of somebody other than yourself in that moment. Parents, you could drink this. You could go with them. You could save this in front of your kids. You could watch this in front of your kids. You could do all of this. But, but if you get radical, you're going to understand that your kids, these little eyes, watch you and take their cues from you every single day. And so you're going to get radical and say, you know what? I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to hang out with them because I don't want my irresponsible and impulsive and selfish behavior to cause my kids to have irresponsible, impulsive, and selfish behavior one day. Well, I don't have to go that far. You might want to. Because what you do in an inch, they'll do in a mile. Well, I, I could hang out with that. I could, I could say that. I, you could, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. How does this apply? Here's how it applies. You're supposed to be a humble disciple, living selfishly, inconsiderate of what others might think around you. That is not praiseworthy. That's selfish. A humble disciple says this, I'm going to live with others in mind. I know there are people in this community that I want to reach and I don't want to do anything that would cause them to think that sin is okay. Yes. Yeah. That is worthy of an amen. That's so good. Jesus is just trying to get these guys to realize. Here's my priorities. Humble service. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to invest your life in humble service. Thinking about what Jesus was trying to do for his disciples, it makes me think of what a coach does when he comes into a program. Like a football program. If they hire a new football coach and the coach comes in, what does he bring with him? Usually a new coaching staff, a new administration. And what comes with a new administration? New priorities. So he might want the kids to dress up on game day. They never had to do that before. He might, them, he might want them to show up 10 minutes to practice. They've never had to do that before. He might want them to not drink any pop. They never had that expectation. He might want them to work out every single morning. They've never had to do that. What kind of player would look at a new coach, a new administration, and know what's important to him, but not do it? Not a humble one. Not one that wants playing time. Listen. On Jesus' team, he has priorities too. No, our culture has all kinds of priorities. But when Jesus comes into your life, he wrecks all of those. And he gives you countercultural priorities that sets value to insignificant. Serve who nobody else serves. Appreciate people that are different than you. They're doing it in my name. And prevent anything from your life, even if it's, it's not inherently sinful, but would prevent somebody else from following me, get it out of your life. He introduces those priorities to you. What kind of Christian, what kind of disciple would not do what's important to Jesus? Not a humble one. One that is all about me. And Jesus is calling every disciple under the sound of my voice today to live life all about others. Here's, here's the thesis. I'll remind you again. Those who share Jesus' priorities will pursue humble service. There's a new coach in town. And he's the son of God. And he 
has his priorities, you would do well to share in them. The richest blessings come to those who serve others. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. So you respond to God's word today.